if I were to absolutely have to come down one side or other, I think he probably will see this out, um, although famous last words, and you can maybe edit that out if something happens in the next 24 hours or whenever we're putting this up. By the time we publish it, he'll have resigned and we'll edit that out. Or, or we'll just we'll just make it so it's at Eamon, your artificial voice going over, I think he's going to resign. <laughs> Thank you. Microsoft Sam makes a special <laughs> guest appearance on the Pin Factory podcast. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host and our director of operations, Morgan Schondelmeyer, and Eamon Ives, the head of energy and environment at the Centre for Policy Studies. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the energy bills crisis, the future of net zero, and of course, Partygate. We've recently seen the wholesale cost of gas soar in recent months, which has already resulted in quite substantial disruption that's been covered very widely in the news with many companies going bankrupt and analysts confidently predicting that the energy price cap first introduced in 2017 will be raised substantially come April. I'd like to dig into this a little deeper to better understand the issue and also assess what sort of policies will actually work in the short term at mitigating some of the impact on the cost of living. This seems to be really, really high up on the government's agenda right now. And there's lots of talk of, of different potential solutions to the inevitable price increase. Uh, but before we get into those, I guess just to start off with you, Eamon, what exactly is driving these recent energy price increases that we're, we've witnessed in recent months? So, so yeah, absolutely. We are seeing um, quite unprecedented rises in the cost of energy, um, both in terms of gas um, that people use to heat their homes or cook their food with, or indeed on the business side of the equation to make a lot of the stuff we buy. Um, Electricity prices also going up, um, they tend to follow gas prices. And yes, as you said, so the reason why gas prices are going up, um, lots of different reasons, I think, actually, but the the one that's causing the overwhelming amount of um, increase has probably been the stronger than expected economic recovery. Um, particularly from places like China and the Far East. Um, obviously, I think that's kind of, it's a good problem to have that the economies have bounced back so strongly from um, COVID and, and what people were expecting. But yes, it is sort of filtering through into these cost increases. Right. So we've got obviously a number of different factors at play here. But I think turning to the policy side, when it comes to some of the, the longer term things that have fed into what's made this such a major issue, what will make it such a major issue in the weeks and months to come. We obviously had in 2017, the government introducing this energy price cap, which was initially and at least intended to tackle some of these situations or the idea that it would cushion consumers from any sort of significant uh, energy price increase. And it seems to have been at least doing that to a certain extent for for the past couple of years almost um, and ensure that families who weren't on fixed tariffs weren't affected too badly. But Morgan, the energy price cap isn't necessarily all it's hoped to be and has had some pretty nasty unintended consequences. Yeah, so one of the things that we've seen because companies essentially can't charge what they otherwise would in a free market is that we have smaller providers that don't have the same margins that don't have uh, you know massive consumer bases are finding it a lot harder to keep up and that's what we saw earlier this year with several minor or new energy providers were failing 
Um, and because of the way that the energy system is set up, those accounts are then absorbed by companies which can afford um, to take on that burden. So you end up with uh, a number of very large suppliers and not much competition and not much innovation because newer companies or smaller companies can't charge a price which uh, allows them to operate. So you end up with an incredibly uncompetitive market, which while the price cap is designed and at the face of it protects consumers from high prices, it really um, in the end results in poorer service like I said, less competition, no innovation. Um, so it is harming consumers uh, in that way. Yeah, and it seems like some people argue that the energy companies themselves are primarily to blame here. The fact that, that many suppliers hadn't bought that much energy advance and had fairly low cash reserves. So when energy prices spiked, therefore led to a lot of them, including annoyingly my own in, in bulb going uh, going bust. But that is related somewhat to the energy price cap, right? There's been some, some pretty perverse incentives that have been created there in terms of uh, investment or making sure that you, you hold reserves over other priorities, given that it, it cut into potential profits so much. Uh, did the CPS have a, a sort of similar stance to the ASI on this, Simon, back in the day when this was mm-hmm. first brought in? So I remember some some rather prescient ASI blog posts and a research paper from, um, from my former colleague, Sam Dimitriou, that was saying that basically exactly this was going to happen. I don't want to commit the whole oh, Austrian school economists have predicted 10 out of the past two recessions thing, but I think we are definitely onto something here. Yeah, so um, I mean, I must admit, I, I joined the CPS about a year after the, the price cap came in, but I'd be surprised if we were saying anything different to, um, to what you guys are saying, because I think it was pretty much equivocal across the board that people just knew this, this could happen and almost certainly would happen. And lo and behold, it has. Um, sort of just tracking back a little bit and to kind of agree with um, what Morgan was saying that, you know, it has worked. It's almost worked a bit too well in that it's kind of, it's obviously held prices down reasonably well for people um, in the last few months. But now we're going to be reevaluating what the price cap should be set at in early February um, for that to come in in, in April. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the real perverse kind of outcomes that we're going to be seeing is that people's bills will be going up incredibly uh, rapidly um, but that's going to come in basically overnight so people aren't going to be really seeing this kind of happening gradually it's really going to be one of those kind of on-off things and I think that's kind of what's causing a lot of the anxiety and worry at the moment in in people looking at their energy bills. Yeah there's something to be said for kind of household budgeting being able to react a lot better to gradual but sustained increases over a month-to-month period as opposed to this kind of thing and of course you know if 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 it was communicated very clearly during the implementation of this policy that oh by the way you know this for many good reasons is likely to lead to the sort of situation where you'll be fine for two years but make sure you save up for uh, for two three years down the line and then Mm -hmm. um you'll be fine for the massive price hike that's coming down the road then then it wouldn't have been as bad i mean that that's not necessarily how people work in terms of they're, they're not going to be at large informed as to that effect of the policy but uh even if they just said something like that during the implementation mm-hmm. it, it may have mitigated somewhat but looking into to mitigation it seems like there, there's a few different options that on the table that are being considered by the government uh, as well as a few potentially quite good options that aren't for for more political reasons when i talk about that i'm referring specifically to things like universal credit and looking at potentially 
uh, reversing some of the the cut in the uplift that took place quite recently. That, for my money at least, seems to be the most sensible solution in an ideal world. Uh, of course, you know the government in all likelihood is not going to U-turn on something like that. Uh, so it, that doesn't seem like that's actually going to happen or, or be on the table politically. But the other two that, that have been talked about that I think are, um, are worth discussing the merits and, and problems with are looking again at the warm homes discount, uh, whether that's simply increasing the overall amount that households on some households, I should say, on low incomes get, uh, as well as some uh, people on low pension income also get. Uh, and the other option is basically cutting VAT on energy bills uh, and combining that in some form with a scrapping or at least a temporary suspension of green levies. Um, I guess going to the thing that's been in the news most, which is that VAT cut and and scrapping green levies proposal. Morgan, I know you uh, wrote a little bit about this or or certainly tweeted about it in in something that I was very sympathetic to when this was being talked about. What's your kind of take on the idea of, of cutting VAT as a way to relieve some of the pressure on energy prices? Yeah, we um, we chatted about it in the office a little bit to kind of hash through what it would look like. And uh, instinctively, cutting VAT, I think, is not the best way to target people on the lowest incomes, because when you cut VAT, you cut it for everyone. So you're also making rich people's energy bills cheaper. Um, so it's an expensive way to cut prices for everyone. And it doesn't actually um, target the people who need it most. Um, you know, poor people do spend more of their disposable income on household bills and things like that. So they would definitely feel the cut um, more than a rich person would, but you're still spending a lot of, or not gaining back as much money um, to give a little handout to to people who are also very wealthy. So cutting VAT is a bit of a distortionary uh, measure, you know, in people's pocketbooks, they would feel um, better off for it. Uh, but the question is, is, is it the best tool? Is it the best way to relieve energy prices? And I don't think that it is because it's not targeted, because it's broad brush. And for, for any number of reasons, it, it doesn't actually tackle the root of the problem. It is just a temporary fix and not a very good one at that, if, if you ask me. Yeah, I think there's consistently at the ASI, there's been a preference for sort of consumption, broad-based consumption taxes as being the least distortive and least economically damaging way of raising revenue for the government. Um, and I imagine, Eamon, you're, you have positions that are just as popular as ours when it comes to VAT. Yeah, um, I, again, sort of in, in agreement with what Morgan said, um, although I'd, I'd probably go further, I'd say I think it's an absolutely idiotic idea um, that's been put forward. Um, I know why it's been put forward. It's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. And yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Um, but I think for exactly the reasons um, you and Morgan have mapped out, it would be a very expensive way of achieving not very much at all. Um, mm. I think estimates that I've seen um, of how much it would save, kind of ranging from about 75, 85, maybe up to about 100 pounds, which is, you know, n- no small amount. But in, in the, the broader context of what we're expecting to, to happen to energy bills, there's still quite a long way to go there. Um, and yes, so the, the real winners of this policy will be the wealthiest who... Um, have bigger homes, they consume more gas. Um, so they're, they're going to be the big winners. Um, and and yeah, no, obviously, we, we want people to be paying as little as possible for their for their energy. Um, but I think that there really are better better ways of, of looking at this crisis. And, and you've already kind of alluded to a couple of those in, in warm homes discount or, or other things, maybe the green levies we can look at. I think that, that there is some some way to go on that. And, and it seems like the government might 
be tempted to do that. I think, thankfully, the government seems like it's distancing itself a little bit from cutting VAT. Um, and yeah, the more it does that, I think the better. Yeah, there's a few kind of contradictory stories earlier on. It seemed like that it was basically ruled out by the Prime Minister and the, the Chancellor. And then there was a, a story in The Sun, I think yesterday, a couple of days ago, maybe at the time of recording that said actually maybe it is back on the table or that at least it's being discussed more seriously again. But I, I think it's worth framing kind of how we respond to this in terms of, okay, someone is going to have to bear the cost of this, right? This is not something that, that we can avoid someone bearing the cost of. The question is who bears the cost um, and how do we do this in the, the most efficient way that protects uh, people on low incomes whilst also not screwing over uh, and disincentivizing good economic activity. Um, and you know, I, for my money, it seems like the, the warm homes discount route is the, the best way to go, given that we can't really realistically do anything with universal credit and that the government just simply wouldn't countenance anything like that. Yeah, so Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation did quite a good speculative thread on the warms the warm homes discount itself and some of the issues that we would have if we were to try and reform it. Um, one of the things being that it's currently administered through energy companies themselves. And if you are a, a household on low income qualifying household that, that receives certain benefits, then you have to apply. And there's a kind of limited number of spots per energy company. And of course, if you want anything serious in terms of trying to mitigate the impact on all low income households, then you're going to have to potentially change the way that you administer that through the tax system, for example, as opposed to through uh, the energy companies themselves. And there's also, of course, the amount. Uh, currently, it's not enough. Um, and it's been suggested that it might need to be doubled. But even that, if you look at the, the overall cost of, of doing that, it, it's still, you know, something that's that's much more efficient. Uh, and, and isn't wasting any money when it compared to something like the VAT cuts. But I'm interested, Eamon, you mentioned that there's potentially some room for manoeuvre on the green levies. Now, if I put myself in the mind of a, a kind of you know, the, the classic neoliberal that I am, and I hear green levies, I think, okay, existing green levies, probably not as efficient as they could be. A broad-based carbon tax would be much better. But are they so bad that we should be countenancing, scrapping them temporarily uh, as opposed to other solutions? Or is this just necessarily a part of it alongside the uh, warm homes discount? Mm. So there's, there's quite a nebulous kind of mix of different policies which kind of get lumped into this, you know, green levies label. And, and some of those are actually kind of more social levies um, than environmental ones. Um, but there certainly are some which I think you could make a reasonably good case for funding out of general taxation on the idea that they were introduced um, really to kind of kickstart a lot of green renewable projects um, or, or things like to do with energy efficiency um, based on the idea that they would create spillovers that um, bring down the costs eventually over time. I think people with a more neoliberal market-based perspective can, can po possibly get on board with the idea of having them and therefore funding them out of general taxation on that basis. And in terms of the kind of the current uh, context of the energy crisis, I think doing that and, and funding it out of general taxation could make a you know a, a small but significant dent in in the coming cost rise. And if it was on a temporary basis, I'm sure that the Treasury could find the money just to kind of to do that, and and it wouldn't be too much of a a big hit politically or economically for the for the government. Well, on that note, let's move on to our next topic of discussion for this podcast, which is the looking to the future of net zero and energy generation in the UK. 
So we've discussed a number of things that we think the government could do to ease the immediate pressure on consumers. But like Dan says, uh, there's a lot to talk about the future of energy and what the prospects are for net zero. Um, Eamon, I know that you authored a paper the other day, so I'd like to talk about that. Um, but generally with net zero, we were one of the first countries to announce a legally binding target for net zero by 2050. What are your thoughts on the target? Is it meaningless? Do you think it's actually jump-started how we think about energy and how we think about renewables? Um, and just kind of love to hear your general thoughts on the target and where you think we are. No, definitely. More than pleased to. Um, so I think uh, the target itself has made a really um, significant difference to um, climate debate, climate policy in general, um, not just here, but uh, obviously around the world as well. The UK introduced its net zero target in 2019, and it was um, you know, one of the, the main leading economies to do that, one of the first ones. And since then, we've obviously had things like COP26. And I think uh, the last time I saw it, I think about 78% of the global economy was now signed up to net zero targets by mid-century. But sort of coming back to, to what it means for the UK, so there was um, there was already um, quite high ambition on um, cutting emissions from the UK economy. Um, that was outlined in the 2008 Climate Change Act, which basically said we needed to achieve an 80% cut um, to emissions relative to a 1990 level baseline, so a little bit more complicated. But with that, there was kind of this old joke, if you could call it that, that Obviously, every industry thought they would be in the sort of the 20% that didn't really need to cut their emissions. And obviously, that, that was kind of a bit of a, a bluff. And um, But now there really is that kind of expectancy on virtually every corner of the economy. They will need to be climate neutral by mid-century. And with respect to energy, I think um, in quite a strange way, this has kind of been one of the areas which has been less impacted by net zero. Um, because it was already making pretty good progress um, in terms of decarbonizing. And... You know, if we'd been doing a little bit more, maybe we wouldn't be seeing such the challenges that we have at the moment. Um, but I really think that is kind of the way out um, of the current challenges and preventing future ones from occurring. So, Dan, in terms of alternative energies, um, we released a paper in uh, autumn 2021 on some kind of uh, way forward uh, and included a lot about nuclear. So, um, I mean, I'm a fan of nuclear. I believe you are too, Dan. Eamon, I don't actually know your thoughts on nuclear, so I'd love to just chat, like, how integral is nuclear power to uh, getting us from current consumption to future renewables? Is it a bridge energy? How important is nuclear? And are we going in the right direction? Or are we, as the UK and globally, why uh, are so many countries divesting of nuclear when we do actually think this might be a good technology? Uh, Dan, I'd like to bring you in on your thoughts on nuclear, and then Eamon will we'll pass over to you a little bit. Sure, it sounds like a really great medium piece. I'm a fan of nuclear energy, maybe you are too. I wonder if that's got a, a potential ring to it there. Um, but yeah, we, we've written positively about nuclear in the past for, for a number of reasons. Um, and of course, the UK is struggling to reduce its dependence on fossil fuel energy sources. Uh, it's managing to a certain extent, but the existing renewable options, solar and wind, whilst obviously a, a key part of that, that energy mix. They are to an extent undermined by issues around storage capacity uh, and grid inertia as well. Um, and nuclear has the potential, at least if, if it's done right and it, it's funded right uh, to be both safe, cost effective as well. Some of the issues that we have at the moment in the UK, I mean, we, we haven't had much in the way of um, of nuclear development here for decades, really. It's something that obviously has quite long lead times, takes a long time and high amounts of capital investment. One of the 
reasons i think why there's been some reluctance uh, to do that has been this kind of treasury mindset of well you've got this this really big initial upfront capital investment um and we've been trying to find ways to change the incentives around that uh, and actually encourage investment into nuclear and of course you know you've got high fixed costs to design you've got extremely uh, onerous though in some cases understandable regulatory compliance there as well um, but certainly nuclear has the potential to, to make a significant contribution i think to net zero uh, and probably the, the key thing and i know Eamon, you you're probably more of an expert on this than me and have written about this in the past for the cps is the funding model for actually making sure that energy production companies do build new nuclear power plants uh, and at the moment we have uh, a model or a few different models which kind of make it more difficult and disincentivize construction uh, and what we'd be looking to move towards and something that's been trialed and tried in other projects before though though not nuclear as much is something called the regulated asset base model and i think Eamon, i'll probably bring you in there to discuss some of the specifics of that and some of the advantages that that brings mm, no happily and sort of coming back to, to morgan's initial question yeah i'm i'm a big fan of nuclear energy but i think i'm maybe more of a kind of a, a nuclear realist like i think a lot of people kind of support nuclear without really knowing um, sort of the economics um, around it. And but but that's kind of by the by, I think kind of if we'd have been building more nuclear historically, we'd be in a far better position today. And I think we absolutely need to get more nuclear into the mix. Um, and it seems like we, w- we will be soon, although a lot of the UK's existing plants are going to be retired quite, quite shortly. So there's going to be a real kind of gap that needs to be filled. Yeah, maybe we can fill it. Um, using new nuclear financed through this new mechanism, the, the RAB model that that Dan um, alludes to. And it's quite technical, so I'll, I'll try and skip over it in, in quite a simple way. But essentially what that model would allow is for um, nuclear developers to um, levy charges on electricity bills um, while construction is taking place. Um, and effectively what that allows them to do is bring down the cost of capital because they don't have to borrow as much. And that really is the kind of the key thing with these you know, quite massive um, projects that are, you know, sucking in lots of money to be able to kind of fund it as it's being built is um, is quite attractive to the developers. And the kind of the rationale for that is that eventually that kind of brings down the, the headline cost. So actually consumers benefit as well. We've seen this model used elsewhere in, in energy networks and infrastructure, some transport infrastructure as well. For people who live in London, they might know that the Thames Tideway Tunnel that's being built, that was funded using a RAV model. And I think a lot of analysis suggests that it was maybe allowed it to be about three times cheaper than it would have been if they they had to go down a kind of more conventional route. Um, it's it's not perfect. I think there are some dangers, um, particularly if um, we see kind of cost and time overruns, which um, the nuclear industry, frankly, has been plagued by, um, and it really is kind of one of those black marks against it as a as a sector. But I think there are kind of good reasons to to support it, particularly where companies are developing. Um, sites that are basically replicas of existing sites. Um, So we have the know-how, we have the teams in place, and hopefully we can kind of just transplant that to another part of the country and and use this um, attractive financing mechanism to do so. Right. And there's ways that you can mitigate, I think, against uh, certainly in the cases of almost replicating existing nuclear infrastructure or working off something that you've already done where there's less risk of massive cost overrun. But you could have an arrangement, I think you suggested in uh, one of your papers a while back about potentially a cap on what consumers Mm -hmm. might have to pay when it comes to to the overall cost yes yeah we we did that um uh you know any any sort of um 
cap would potentially increase costs. Um, but I guess if you think about it kind of like insurance, so yes, costs might go up a little bit, but you're really kind of protected from those exorbitant cost prices, which would have to be borne by the investors in, in the project. So moving on from nuclear, there's uh, you know a few other options that could be worth exploring. Um, and one that's been popular in the state, well, not politically popular, but has seemed to be working in the States is fracking. Um, so we've basically banned it in the UK since 2019, but um, it could show a lot of potential to deliver you know, cheaper energy and help us get um, from where we are to, to more renewables. So what do you think about um, fracking and the costs and benefits and whether or not it's a technology we want to pursue? So fracking is one of those technologies that really divides opinion. You know, we've been talking about nuclear power and we know that that divides opinion. Um, I think fracking probably even more so. And you're right, it, it's effectively been banned in the UK since 2019. Um, there were some plans to kind of get it off the ground in the late 2000s, early 2010s. They weren't successful. So when I'm kind of deciding on it, I, I kind of think that it's almost not worth talking about because I just don't see it happening in the UK. I don't see it as a as a, as a thing that people like you and I should kind of be expending energy in of our of our own looking at um, because I just do not see it as a viable technology in terms of acceptance and things like that you look at the opinion polling you look at kind of the sites where it would be built you know we struggle in the uk to build a beautiful cottage on the green belt i don't think people are going to want to live close to you know a, a fracking well which potentially is going to cause earthquakes potentially is going to worsen their water uh, quality obviously then we've got all the massive climate change impacts and things like that I've seen a pretty sound analysis about exactly how much we would be able to extract um, and perhaps a lot less than, than you might expect. And given the kind of the economics of Britain's gas market, very kind of plugged into the European and international gas market, how much of a difference would it actually be able to affect on, on international prices? Um, you know, I'm not going to deny supply and demand. Um, I think it would make a small amount of difference. Um, but the idea that we could kind of see precipitous falls in the cost of energy i think is perhaps a little bit overblown all right always nice to hear no denials of supply and demand <laughs> on the pin factory podcast something that can't be said for the vast majority of development and planning discourse in this country but hey ho uh yeah exactly no i i, I appreciate that honesty um very straightforward no to fracking from Eamon. One thing that you are in favor of, which you wrote about in your new report, and we are also in favor of, is a border-adjusted carbon tax. Can you explain what that is? I know Dan would love to jump in on this as well, because he's a big fan of this policy. So uh, tell the listeners what a border-adjusted carbon tax looks like and why it is a good idea. Mm, yeah, so a carbon border adjustment mechanism, border adjustment tax, carbon tariff, whatever you want to call it. I call it a CBAM for short. Essentially kind of comes down to the idea that we want to create a level playing field between goods and uh, well, goods that are produced in the UK and those that are produced abroad but might not have had to account for the externalities um, in terms of climate change that they would have caused. Um, perhaps they haven't been paying carbon prices, which um, to a certain extent happens in the UK. Perhaps they haven't had to fit certain uh, technologies or abide by certain regulations. So it's a way of kind of preventing that kind of undermining of goods that are produced to high environmental standards by those that don't have to abide by them. Um, and I think it's something which has really risen in prominence over the last couple of years. The EU is moving um, ahead on this uh, quite a rapid pace. Um, and I think it would be great for the UK to also do that. And potentially look at kind of linking um, a UK CBAM with an EU one, perhaps involving the US. I know that President Biden 
has um, sort of flirted with it, although maybe John Kerry, not so much. But I think there's real sort of momentum behind this in a way that there, there hasn't been before. So I think that that's grounds for optimism, at least. Yeah, I think that you, you make the point quite well of the need for a degree of multilateralism when it comes to introducing something along these lines. Because with the UK, if we just did it by ourselves, we didn't try and do it as part of a, a group of nations, then obviously, you know, you're blunting the impact but what you're doing is you're reducing your kind of bargaining power on the national level a lot more significantly when it comes to trade negotiations of any sort than if you had you know a, a block of countries doing this kind of classic trade economics nothing uh, particularly new there but I think one, one of the things that came up in your report that I actually I, I hadn't thought about before um, in relation to the net zero agenda I found really interesting was this idea of not just um, abolishing the factory tax, as we like to call it, um, but more specifically having a, a permanent, I believe, super deduction for green investment. So not just the, the kind of 100% full expensing, but actually going above and beyond and acting as a, a kind of, I, I guess, an implicit subsidy, right, for um, for green investment through the tax system is that about right in terms of how i've characterized it yeah i think that's pretty fair i mean i think with that one we kind of see the the uk government with its net zero strategy is asking an awful lot of um private businesses and and some real heavy industries to kind of clean up their acts and and decarbonize and often that will mean investing in completely um new processes to kind of produce the same things but just in a green way and i think it's kind of only right that businesses have that support in place to actually make those investments like it's it's all well and good kind of designing them and developing them and having entrepreneurs actually bringing them to market but businesses actually need to adopt them so i guess that's sort of our thinking behind that one um, that if they needed that extra little nudge um, to invest in it, uh, maybe you know we can we can revise it. And I think kind of the full full expensing is is obviously an extremely good po- uh, policy. Um, the factory tax, obviously, as you guys like to call it, um, and we've been um, I think all all of us together in centre right think tanks in in Westminster have been doing a good job um, in convincing the Treasury on that. But that's going to run out next year, I think. So yeah, let let let's make that permanent as a kind of a, a baseline um, to allow businesses to make these investments. Um, uh, a lot more effectively and then you know if, if we kind of need to look at maybe extra help for, for certain businesses that really need to to decarbonize then then maybe that's something we can look at as well yeah i think one of the things that, that kind of came up for me on you mentioned the current super deduction running out in, in 2023 uh being temporary basically and, and the concern that i have is that when uh, our, our wonderful friends and colleagues at the treasury evaluate the effects of this policy they're not going to see as high an impact as they might have expected Mm -hmm. uh, given the numbers that came out of the US because there's a certain extent to which you're just shifting investment uh, over time as opposed to Mm -hmm. actually resulting in a, in a net increase overall so I think that alongside the the aspect of the the clean energy and uh, green investment agenda that you've mentioned in the report there's there's another case for extending this or making it permanent which is that you're actually going to see those those net investment effects over time and those net employment and productivity effects that we talk about so much when it comes to full expensing and that we might not see uh, at the moment definitely and especially because they're jacking up corporation tax you know you'd expect that to yeah. be a bluntening effect as well so you know can you kind of really kind of capture the full impact of what the the full expensing policy um, would have had. Um, one question that I have, uh, kind of wrapping up the section on future of energy, is and it, it's a bit of a glib question because I want to know what one policy you think would kind of 
turn the tables. And it, obviously it's going to have to be a collection of policies. You can't just have one magic switch because if there were a magic switch, we would have done it already. But if you could have your pick, if you're talking down at the pub, talking to someone about energy and you want to just get your point across quickly, what is the one thing that you always turn to is like your favorite policy, the policy you think is the most impact, the policy no one knows about that we should be shouting about from rooftops. That could be three different policies to be fair, but <laughs> what comes to mind? Yeah, so I think my, my favorite policy, which I've spent probably most of my um, career in Westminster kind of advocating for is um, uh, some form of carbon pricing um, but applied in such a way that kind of it's it's doing a really good job of um, targeting emissions. So, you know, you might also think of like a carbon tax, um, so a certain levy on emissions. And I think the best way that I've seen so far, and I wrote a paper about this um, last year for the CPS, would be to kind of levy it as far upstream in the economy as possible, um, by which we mean kind of the point at which gas or oil is piped from the depths or coal is mined out of the ground, whichever company is directly doing that has to pay a tax accordant to the amount of emissions that the coal, gas, oil, whatever is eventually going to produce. And I think the beauty of that is that you, first of all, you capture or you cover all of those emissions with a price signal. It's also infinitely more simplistic for whoever HMRC to apply. So businesses have to spend less, um, you know, adjusting to it, filling out forms or whatever. And yeah, no, I think having something like that would just create a constant sort of pressure on carbon emissions that we're all consciously or not kind of taking that into consideration when we're making decisions of, you know, what appliance to buy, um, whether we're going to buy a petrol car or an electric vehicle. And yeah, I think we, we're seeing a lot more people kind of coming around to this idea. I think people, interestingly, coming back to the debate on energy bills, I think one thing um, which I've heard um, put forward by Chris Skidmore MP, who is the guy who actually signed the UK up to uh, net zero by uh, 2050, um, he seems to be endorsing this. So I think the, sort of the traction in, in Parliament is going that way. Something we've heard from the Labour Party is that we need a windfall tax on fossil fuel giants. And I'm, I'm assuming that's probably extremely popular with the general public. Who who the hell likes fossil fuel giants? But I think kind of a carbon tax might be a, a, a more kind of politically and economically effective way of going about doing that in, in terms of holding them to, to account for the climate change that their products are causing. So so yeah, that, that would be my one if I could wave a magic wand um, and enact tomorrow. I think a proper price on carbon is something that the UK really needs to go forward with. Yeah, annoyingly, uh, you've stolen my thunder there. So I'll try and add to, to what you said and specifically looking at the, the political viability and the redistributive potential when it comes to uh, any form of carbon tax, carbon levy. And that's the idea of redistributing it through some form of carbon dividend, basically using the revenues from that to either uh, redistribute through general uh, welfare system or perhaps a, a lump sum payment that goes out to every single person in the UK. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to both in an ideal world. I think I'd prefer it to basically be channeled into, say, a, an increase in universal credit or perhaps a, a further reduction of the taper rate and be used to pay for that. That seems like the the best, most targeted way of using that money for the most good. Uh, but I can see the kind of political 
attraction of making it a lump sum payment to absolutely everyone to make sure that you've got that kind of wider society buy-in for any sort of carbon tax because ultimately you know the the inescapable truth about them is that you are going to push up prices for a wide variety of different goods and services and any sort of mitigation for that and what people can see in their pockets and acknowledgement that this isn't done in order to make our lives more expensive and boost the cost of living it's to accurately reflect the social costs of pollution and, and carbon production then uh, that to me seems like the way to go and and correct me if i'm wrong but this would be used as maybe the only measure in terms of tax uh, manipulation right this isn't something that you're adding on to all the other things we're already doing right this do you envision this as re- as a replacement for other sort of taxation and green levies and all of these things Almost certainly. And, and I think that would be economically kind of more pure um, and logical, um, but also I think probably politically necessary. So as I kind of said, we, we do already have some kind of nascent carbon pricing systems. We have the UK emissions trading system, and then we kind of have proxy levies, which you might kind of regard as kind of having some carbon pricing elements. So whether that's yeah, fuel duty, <laughs> yeah, things, things like that, which like... Um, I think there's kind of this, people have got it into their heads that like, basically that is a carbon tax. So I think, yeah, there's, there's kind of scope to really kind of um, sweep the the floor clean um, and kind of just implement this one thing. Um, I think on its own, it, it can't be relied upon to do all of the heavy lifting, but I think it can be relied upon to do a significant amount. And I think that just gets us into a better situation. It's more economically coherent. I think it probably almost certainly brings down the cost of getting to net zero. And, and I think that's absolutely essential, you know, talking about this kind of wider cost of living crisis, we need to be making sure we're adopting the most cost effective policies that we have at our disposal. Otherwise, people are rightly, I think, going to get fed up with um, a lot of the kind of the green agenda. So it's incumbent upon politicians to be making those decisions which um, cut emissions, but cut them in the most cost effective and cheapest way. Yeah, I I feel like you touched on uh, often overlooked aspect of carbon pricing that chimes quite well with the centre-right agenda, which is that simplification it's doing what for environmental levies what something like universal credit is designed to do when it comes to welfare policy taking all of these often very uh, poorly designed or inefficient piecemeal measures designed to solve a problem and putting them all together and and into one simple well-targeted measure that will solve the problem and that also i think it's uh, people can better understand you know you mentioned the different variety of, of various green levies that people may or may not consider to be a form of carbon tax and some of them people might object to and think oh, that seems you know ridiculous how is this helping the environment and it's just uh, you know putting a, a higher burden on my monthly bills and whatnot but being able to point at one thing and say this is the green tax this is what we pay in order to save the environment i think is it, very intuitively you know easy to understand uh, and appealing i think that that about sums it up um should we move on to everyone's favorite topic of late which is uh, uh party gate mock three this is party gate number three party gate number four i've lost yeah, count i'm losing count. Count. i've stopped <laughs> Regular listeners to the podcast may think this is a bit of deja vu, but we're back talking about Boris Johnson's latest party scandal. It's recently emerged that the Prime Minister's private secretary invited over 100 Downing Street staff to a BYOB party, very generous, uh, on the 20th of March 2020. Uh, I'm sure we all know the details, but let's just kind of 
dive into what the reaction has been and, and perhaps make some predictions on what this might mean in terms of Boris's premiership. Morgan, going to you first. Well, I must apologize because it was the 20th of May 2020, but I wrote that intro. So Dan's error just there saying March is completely my fault. 20th of May 2020 was the date of this party, which... Um, there was probably one on March as well. There, there probably was one on March 20th, and we just don't know about it yet. But it's that's the thing. It's just It seems to be a relentless um, kind of kick in the face to the British people that the Prime Minister was having uh, these parties in his garden, which uh, his, his defense on Wednesday at PMQs was that uh, he didn't realize it was a party. He thought genuinely thought that it was a work event, um, which I think is just a hilarious uh, defense and a bit, again, offensive to all the people who made huge sacrifices. But we can go on and on about this one event, but I think it's a general trend of this whole one rule for them, another for us. And it's so cliche at this point, but we just keep seeing it over and over again. And we're it's not even just with our politicians. It's something that we're seeing with Novak Djokovic trying to get into Australia. Um, it is people who are in power, who have means, who think that they can get away with breaking the rules, even more so when they're the ones who are making the rules. My usual instinct is to be a little bit wary when it comes to going in very hard against people in power for doing something like this. But it's just so obvious to me that this is a, a, a terrible example of what the sort of thing you should not be doing uh, and an extremely frustrating example at that. I guess one of the things that really interests me about this is looking at actually is this going to just lead to the demise of Boris is this going to be the end is, is this the final thing uh, and whenever I have these questions I check in with my good friends at the Good Judgment Project the super forecasting platform uh, which is uh, an excellent uh, way of uh, trying to predict and forecast future events and just looking now in the past 24 hours the chance of Boris Johnson no longer being prime minister before June uh, has gone up by 10% and it's now a 25% chance, which is which is actually extremely high um, and, and a lot more than potentially that I expected as well. So it seems like the, the political ramifications of this are extremely severe. Uh, and for me, it's, it's not so much that, you know, that they potentially broke the rules uh, on multiple occasions, though, you know, that's obviously uh, annoying. The worst part of it may be, in fact, the hypocrisy. The thing that irritates me is that a lot of these rules were very questionable you know it, it kind of highlights to me that in some ways they were designed unreasonably um so of course there was going to be maybe not you know 100 people byob i think that's ridiculous but sometimes you can say that, that they went a little bit too far but they're the ones that designed the rules so they don't really get to to have that excuse i guess you know i made i made a vow to myself to a few years ago to really detach myself from the 24-hour news cycle um, but even I was gripped <laughs> free MQs yesterday to watch um, to watch it all go down. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. We've obviously got this report or inquiry that's going on from uh, Sue Gray, um, and it seems like a lot of what you know could potentially happen will hinge on exactly what that um, comes out with. Will it be a more kind of factual account of what happened? I think we kind of broadly know what happened. Or will it be a bit more colourful and kind of gives um, certain other cabinet members the 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 green light to maybe kind of pull rank and and um, withdraw their support for him? Um, I think that's going to be inter interesting. I'm I'm loath to kind of make political predictions mainly because I get them so wrong. But I think I don't know. I can just see him clinging on. He's done it so many times before. 
people try and you know throw the kitchen sink at him and he just somehow manages to keep on going and if I were to absolutely have to come down one side or other I think he probably will see this out. Uh, one of the, the things that stood out to me was the two cabinet ministers who were conspicuously uh, less forthcoming in their support for Boris uh, and not really taken to the airwaves as much to, to kind of back their man and that was perhaps unsurprisingly the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and uh, Liz Truss as well. I think both of them uh, being a, a little bit more tepid in their support than some of the other ministers um, and there's obviously a good reason for that. Those two are the, the key kind of runners and riders to succeed Boris, or at least they're, they're slated as that. And I was I was chatting last night with my partner about which of those two I prefer in the event that we had a, uh, a Boris Johnson go. And of course, this is purely on a, a personal basis, uh, views and opinions, my own in this case. But I'm kind of torn. Um, I very much had myself down as a, a Team Liz person, but I'm wondering whether Rishi, if he was able to be kind of taken out of Treasury Brainville, whether he would actually end up coming into his own and be uh, pretty pretty effective because he seems like he has the right instincts. He certainly doesn't seem to have the instincts of holding a 100-person BYOB party in Downing Street at the very least. I think it's an interesting one that I think most of us kind of have a pretty good picture of who Liz Truss is, you know uber freedom sort of person i don't really know like what sunak necessarily stands for so i think that would be an interesting one you know people do they actually kind of know if they were to support him who they're getting behind and and yeah so i think that's kind of an interesting dynamic which could could play out you know if, if this does transpire that we, we are going to be having a leadership election just something to throw out there perhaps replacing uh Universal credit with Pizza Express vouchers in its entirety is <laughs> flagship policy. Our, our hot takes have been had. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But Eamon, I think your comment on not knowing what Rishi stands for is a common thread. I think his entire career as you know Chancellor has been taken up by a very specific problem. And so he hasn't really had a chance to flex what he stands for other than getting the country through a pandemic. So I'd be, I'd be interested to see that as well. Yeah, the, the, the IEA's uh, interview with him at Conservative Party conference last year, I thought was quite interesting, where it seemed obviously in that circumstance, he is going to make the right noises given the audience. But it seemed like he actually had a, a fairly decent understanding of uh, a centre-right um, approach to economics, even if he's been treasury brain to a large extent. Uh, I feel like that's almost inevitable when it comes to most chancellors, and it, it takes a very special chancellor to, to not become a victim of that particular ailment. Uh, but I'd encourage listeners to check that out on the, the IEA's YouTube channel. Um, and of course, check out the ASI's YouTube channel for excellent content as well. But yeah, on that note, I think it's probably time to bring this week's episode to a close. Uh, and I'd like to thank my wonderful co-host, Morgan Chondelmeyer, uh, Director of Operations, as well as our guest for this episode, Eamon Ives, the Head of Energy and Environment at the Centre for Policy Studies. If you like what you're hearing, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you next week for yet more banter analysis.